Hi, my name is Steve Williams. And I'm Clara Williams. We would like to welcome you to our new podcast, Voices from the Choir, Oh Happy Day Reflections. This podcast is about my journey growing up in the San Francisco, Oakland Bay Area, along with my cousin Diane, my childhood friends Kathy, Donald, Arva, Gwen, and Arva and Gwen's cousin Ron, and our time as members of the Edward Hawkins Singers. We'll each share stories which began with singing in the Northern California State Youth Choir of the Church of God in Christ. Our incredible journey starts when we recorded an album that included the song, Oh Happy Day, which changed our lives. We've never shared these stories until now. Over the years of our marriage, Clara's always wanted to tell the story of this life-changing event. I'll be your host through these nine episodes as we hear from these voices from the choir. We're going to pick up part two of Clara's interview as she shares with us some of the challenges she faced early on in her time with the choir. Clara, give us an idea about how your life changed after your mom passed away. Such a traumatic event in the middle of your senior year of high school. You were very involved in the choir at that time. What did you do to keep things managed and just keep on going? Actually, being in the Northern California Youth Choir helped sustain me during that time, immediately after my mom's death, that, what shall I do now? Oh, I'll go to choir rehearsal. That always made me feel good. That's when things around me started not having as much importance. And the one thing about death like that, when it's a key figure in your family, any loss of a family member, especially when you're all one unit, I mean, everybody is still at the house, all the family members are there, it affects that family structure. It's like a pillar of the house, a wall, the retaining wall has been removed. Even if it was my mom or my dad, or even if it was one of the siblings, that's a loss. And so with my mom being gone, I can remember the night before she passed away when she wasn't feeling good when I left home, but I had plans. So I figured, okay, maybe it was indigestion or something. She just, she'll be all right because she was like new now. (laughs) And so I went, did it was some church musical or somewhere I went. And so when I came back, I got back home about 10 and my dad said, she's not better. I I think we're gonna have to take her to the hospital. I think at that time, I think my sister was married. She was married and my brother was in college. So I was the only one at home besides with my dad. And so when I got back home, of course, I had my own car. So when I got back home, she just looked different. And she said she was having trouble catching her breath. And we had to put the pillows up. And there were things now I knew. Now I know she was dying. At the time, it just looked weird. So we anyway, I don't want to go through the whole thing about her going to the hospital now and we have so much to be thankful now because they can just plug in a computer and 
tell that you just had a checkup last week with Dr. So-and-so. Well, the records didn't work like that. And her doctor had just left for vacation. And I'll always remember she was so excited that her doctor, who was her primary care doctor, even before she had the surgery at Stanford. In fact, this doctor had recommended, and it was a female doctor, and she had gone to Copenhagen for a vacation. And my mom was like, Copenhagen? Yeah, yeah, I'm a typical teenager. Okay, what's the deal? <laughs> Why is she so excited? Uh, that's nice. <laughs> so, but none of her records were available or anything like that. And so she passed away the next morning. In fact, before we, we were going to take her toothbrush and whatnot, the toiletries. And when we got there, I know I think my dad had gone to take the toiletries and what, and by the time he got there, they said she hadn't made it. And you know what? Now that I recall, I didn't go to the hospital and I'm thinking now, like, why didn't I why, why didn't I go? I, you know, and I, why didn't daddy have me come up there? I'm actually just thinking about that right now, <laughs> today, <laughs> this moment. But I think that he was in shock. I mean, he was able to call home and tell, and, and no, wait, he was able, actually, I had gone to church and he went to the hospital and I had driven to the church in rich in San Pablo now. And so I was at church and believe it or not, my brother was gone. And I was on the piano trying to, you know, and this is like, I could play a couple of congregational songs. <laughs> and, uh, and then uh, he called the church and that's how I found out. And he told me, and it's just, of course it ended the service. <laughs> that was it. But just coping, I think being in the Northern California Youth Choir, I knew on Monday nights that would happen, and the choir was very supportive. And with high school, I had enough units to have graduated the year before, and they allowed that at Berkeley High. I just kept thinking, gosh, I wish I had graduated early. I could have, because I just said, I'm not here. <laughs> I'm sorry, I can't focus. And I had enough units if I showed up half the time, and that's probably pretty much what I did, showed up half the time, just to get to pass the class, to get a B or whatever. I, I was gone. I, it didn't matter. I was, it was over. <laughs> High school was over for me. I had all, all of my college requirements, all that I had taken earlier. So there was just some elective classes that I was taking. And it was interesting, that's when actually I had about, quote, first official boyfriend, and he was a member at one of the other churches. He wasn't in the choir, but he was around, and he was a musician. He played piano very well. And I had seen him, but not really, I didn't really know him, but he made himself known to me. I guess it was at another musical that was at, you know, maybe a few weeks, a month after my mom passed. But I think I went out with him, I, I want to say about six months. Everything seems, it seems longer now, but it's actually only maybe about six months. But that was good for me because it took my mind off of what was going on. I found out that my mom paid all the bills. She ran the household. My dad didn't have a clue of what bills to pay, any of that. So... I took that over. I took the checking account over. I ran the house. 
it didn't bother me, but it just, I was just amazed at my mom that I never knew that before. I mean, it was their business, you know, but I know some moms would have, everybody would have known, like, can't you do this right or do that? or But that's what she did. She kept that going. And so going, the Hawkins Singers with things, I guess, that early spring, I want to say it was probably March or April. It was after my birthday when we just had a annual concert. And by now we were very popular in the Bay Area. We were selling the records, you know, ourselves. And we had name recognition around the Bay Area. And so that's when things took off pretty quickly because by the summer we knew we had our first tour, national tour lined up. How was the gospel music scene in the Bay Area at that time? Where did people go if they wanted to buy gospel music? You purchase your record from the record stores. And Reed's Records, when I say it's at Reed's Record, I may be speaking too quickly, but I believe they bought the records from us. <laughs> and, uh, you know, if you got 40 members in a dozen churches, we can move some records. But I think there were records that you could purchase at Reed's Records as well even though we did not have a distribution deal at that time. So I'm just thinking now from all the legal aspects of how many records he could sell or was he even allowed to do that or how he did it. But he did, and he was one of the sponsors of our concerts. I'm sort of thinking he did. I know he promoted a lot of gospel. When I say Reed, Mel Reed was the owner. And it makes sense to me now that he was promoting he did promote the record because he became our road manager. So I'm pretty sure now he may have made some calls, but what got it rolling was after that concert when someone attended the concert that heard sing those songs. It was an album, so he probably bought the album there at the at the Oakland Auditorium. That's where we had our annual anniversary concert. And he played the record to a DJ friend back in New York and this and that he being so I don't know who the guy is I mean you could probably I could probably find that out but he played it to a DJ friend that was probably pretty connected in terms of the hit records and whatnot and he played it over the radio and of course back east they're a few hours ahead of us and then it, by the time we got up Monday morning it was on our local, similar to Kiss a, a Kiss FM, because <laughs> that again going back to the type of music that we could freely play. My mom was okay with those sort of pop kind of soft rock and roll. Tell Laura I love her. Yeah, she was okay with that kind of music. So that's where we heard it, and so my sister and I, we're like screaming. It's like that movie, The Five Heartbeats, <laughs> you know, it's a sparkle or something like that. But yeah. Because the record they were playing was Oh Happy Day. Yes. And it had that really recognizable piano intro. Oh, you knew it. I mean, you knew it. There's no way five beats and you knew what that was. Yeah. It was Oh Happy Day. Yeah. And, and it was on the cycle. It kept playing it all day. And then that's when things happened fairly quickly after that. And I think I may have mentioned 
I'm sure within that time, that's when the record companies approached Ed. That's when things started happening that we did not know about. So just to go back a little bit, uh, once it started to happen and the record was taking off and you were hearing it on the radio, uh, which was really huge, how did you start getting reaction from your peers and, and people that were around you? When people started talking, what were they saying? Well, you know, I'm trying to place my involvement, and when I say involvement, sometime after that, I don't know if it was initially, if we had time to just come back together and like, wow, because our rehearsals were on Monday, so I'm sure we we might have taken that Monday off because we just had the concert on Sunday, so I'm not even sure we had rehearsal the very next night. I can't recall, but I know it wasn't too long after that, maybe day. Now, I won't say weeks. I'll say days that I got a call from one of the choir. Actually, it's funny. There were relationships formed in the Elwynaga Singers. My, my aunt married a young man from Betty Watson's church, and that's how I found out that Betty was calling a meeting because Ed was in New York and was signing contracts and it changed the name. I'd say maybe a week or so later, I would say. It wasn't that long afterward. Then by the time we had a rehearsal, it was called a special business meeting. And so, I mean, I can guess what that was about. <laughs> and it's during this time, I'd say it was maybe a, another two weeks, so at least another week or so before we had the business meeting. But in that interim time, Betty had called a group together and expressed her dismay over what had happened, that she believed that Ed was in New York signing contracts and had not informed her of anything that was going on. And her intent was to try to keep the Northern California Youth Choir because we had talked about changing the name because by now we were singing. And I mean, this was before the record became, (laughs) got on a national playlist. We were singing at so many different places and we really didn't see ourselves as an arm of the Northern California State Church. It's just that we were singing at fashion shows in different other places. And so we were thinking, eh, we wanted to sing at other places. So we're thinking, eh, maybe we should change the name. So we had kicked around different names. And Edwin Hawkins Singers, that name had come up. But we were saying, well, but it's not just Ed. I know he's our choir director, but Betty has a lot of it. So we was, you know, we weren't, we had not made a decision yet. So anyway, that was part of it. And she wanted to retain, we, at that time, we didn't know what had happened. It was just kind of rumored. But she wanted to retain the Northern California State Youth Choir. And she was willing to get other singers. And she had that power to do that as well, because they were co-directors of the Northern California State Youth Choir. So that's what she saw. And so she wanted to retain the record and everything under the Northern California State Youth Choir. So that's when she had a meeting 
with Andre and he actually came up. It was somewhere or somewhere in, I can't remember where, somewhere in the Bay Area we met. And of course it was, I maybe there was about maybe five or six of us that met. And and that's the only reason I was there is because I knew Fred and Fred calls and uh, now it's Uncle Fred. And it's interesting, I can't remember who else was there besides Betty, <laughs> myself, mm-hmm. <laughs> and Fred. I knew there were two or three other people there. Now, granted, I'm in high school. I'm in 12th grade. But at the time, it was important news. I felt that this affected, there were clearly some things here that weren't right. So that was my feeling. I wanted to get as much information as I could and learn what is our status and what's our situation. Maybe my dad was with me. I can't remember. This was clearly beyond what people had imagined happening. Oh, yes. This was clearly out of the blue. So, I mean, even meeting with Andre, that was the first time I actually met him up close. But Betty was a good friend, their family friends. And he just basically said, like, hey, look, I wish you all well. Because she was asking him, well, his opinion. And he said, I can't really comment because I don't know. And she wanted to know, did he think it was right for her to try to maintain? And he said, I can see why you would. And then she asked him, would you like to be our choir director? Because she knew, A, he was a writer. He's already pretty popular. And he says, I got my own thing going. I'm happy. I feel good about that. And at this time, I wouldn't want to take that off. So there clearly was a lot of tension in the room that day after hearing the announcement kind of caught everybody off guard, I guess, because we're only talking about a matter of weeks since the record came out. People were selling it out of the back of their cars. Yes. I don't even know if Ed knew that because he was off in New York signing contracts or being exposed to other possibilities. So I don't even know if he had taken all of that into consideration. My feeling is... And from that subsequent rehearsal, we had the business meeting that he didn't know. And that's not an unusual thing, because coming from a local church, um, a local gospel music scene, not everybody had the skills that were necessary to deal with these big time record companies and think that you could negotiate one on one with them. I remember in the movie about the Clark sisters, what happened when Twinkie (laughs) went off on her own and signed a record contract. And her mom, uh, Maddie Mouse Clark, was just livid about it because she didn't ask her for any advice. Feeling that somehow we can get up there and go face to face and negotiate with these sophisticated business people sometimes can lead to other things. Right. And Twinkie was exactly like Ed because Ed probably should have called Maddie Moss Clark because she had been recording records for years. Or James Cleveland or somebody that had a label distribution or something that was already on some sort of label. I don't know that he did any of that. So when we had this meeting and he had people there from Buddha Records and... So let's just talk about that for a minute. You were at that meeting with Betty when she had a conversation with Andre Crouch. And she had a select group of people there with her at the time. So when you leave that meeting, what what's resolved? We needed to find out what happened. Because I said, we don't know. We don't have enough information. 
We need to find out what happened when he went to New York. So who calls the next meeting then? Ed calls the next meeting because he's gotten back now. And so he wants everybody to know what's happened because there were rumors, but nobody had an official word what had happened. So you go to the meeting. Was it on a rehearsal day? I can't remember. So what is the vibe? What's the tone? How do people come into the meeting? It was mixed. There were people that were excited. Betty was like nervous, just numb. Because ultimately, Betty was going to be finding out at the same time everybody else was, right? So there was an anxiousness to hear. There was a numbness of being like, wait a minute, all this happened? You did all this? And then there was just like, okay, what's going on? So when you came to the meeting, who was in the room? Anybody that you were familiar with? Well, when we went in, and now I'm thinking it wasn't, I'm trying to even think, I don't even think it was at our regular place that we rehearsed. I think it was somewhere else. It was. It wasn't at the school. But, I mean, it held everybody. And then you had maybe a dozen people Jewish-looking guys. <laughs> they were from the church, yeah, so <laughs> that were there. And Ed introduced them as, I think you had some magazines, Newsweek, some press, some record president there. And so how do those introductions go down? You said that Buddha Records was there? He introduced the president of Buddha Records, somebody from Newsweek, some media people. And he had a rendering of the new album cover. So it was a new mock-up of what was already recorded? Yes, on a new cover. Because the original cover has sort of a spectrum on a black background. And this had a white background. I think the name was still the same. It was on an easel. It was a big mock-up on an easel. I can't be 100% sure you might have changed a little bit over the years, but it was that or something similar. They were clearly prepared to have that meeting. Oh, yes. This was this appeared to be like a press conference to meet the choir, make this announcement to the choir. So what did you hear? What was the news that got presented there? He introduced these people and he said, I wanted to share with you now that the past 10 days has been whatever. What was presented? What was the announcement? The announcement was that I've just signed with a new record label and changed the name to Edwin Hawkins Singers. We had talked about that. I was waiting for Betty to say something. I thought that she would have said, well, wait a minute, Ed. I think we need to talk about some things that have happened to get to this point that we didn't know about first that I think we need to have a conversation about that. When Ed finally made the announcement, what was the reaction in the room? Some people clapped their hands. There was some excitement, yeah. That was pretty exciting. Personally, I had a resolve where I thought this was going to be a meeting where you tell us what happened, not a celebration where you bring in all these visitors to sort of celebrate when we have never been told officially. So I felt having that celebration was misplaced. I didn't think that was the right approach. That's how I felt. 
So nobody was standing up to say anything from that perspective, you know, because we just attended these meetings and whatnot, and what has Ed done, what happened. And so I just raised my hand and I said, I think we need to have a meeting. And he says, oh, yeah, well, this, I said, no, this isn't a meeting. We need to have a private meeting without these other people here. And so he said, oh, I said, well, a lot of things have happened. You came here, the names changed, and all these people, we have a new label, a new album cover, and this is my first time learning about it. And so I think there needs to be some explanation to what's going on, and we need to have a private meeting. He says, oh, okay. And so he asked everybody to step out that weren't part of the choir to step out. So... After they left, and like one guy was still, I said, <laughs> it was funny because I, and I don't know because I felt like things were bubbling up in me and I was going to explode if we didn't get this across. And this guy with a camera, and I said, That includes you too. Can you leave? <laughs> and so everybody cleared the room. And uh, the, my, in fact, my dad was at that meeting too. And he said, well, and somebody said, well, their parents. And I was like, and the parents said, well, we have the right to be here because our children are involved in this, you know? So, but anyway, so I just said, look at, I said, it looks like the name was changed. The album cover was changed. Did you sign contracts? I just started questioning him. I said, so did you have our permission to sign those contracts? Did you contact the bishop or anybody from the Church of God in Christ? Because this is their record. I said, did any of that happen? And I said, we don't know what happened. We could have been taken advantage of. You could have been taken advantage of. Did you contact a lawyer? You know, I just learned all this within the past week or so myself, but I just said, it just seems like there a lot went on without you contacting any of us. Did you contact Betty? Oh, no. And, and then he just said, things happen so quickly. I really didn't even think that. He said, it just didn't occur to me that I needed to do that. So there was a little foreshadowing there about what would become your future career path in the legal profession, advocating for things that other people don't really want to talk about. It's amazing. What did you think about that? Yes. And it's interesting when I look over, I was still in high school, hadn't I started college? And other than being in plays, you know, or giving an Easter speech at church, you know, or you know, activities at church, no, I, 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 and even then, I didn't think of myself of, oh, those are lawyering skills. I never put that together until maybe a couple of years later when I was in college and I went to one of these women's feminist meetings and they asked, is there ever, anything occupation? that you thought about being and you decided no because that's not something women do. And then I recalled that when I was, I guess I must have been a 10 and I can't even remember why I even thought of that. And in fact, it was interesting, it was Dorothy Morrison's husband, <laughs> Oh Happy Day, her husband. And he, they, again, I said, they were members at our church and he says, Claire, what would you like to do when you grow up? And I said, you know what? I think I'd like to be an attorney. To this day, I don't know why I said that. 
I don't even know what, if there was a Perry Mason show. I didn't watch Perry. I don't know why I said, and he said, why? And I said, you know what? It just seems like something that would be interesting to me. And he says, oh, you know, lawyers are liars. And I said, they are? <laughs> and I said, oh, okay. And I hadn't thought about that until fast forward, I don't know how many years when they asked. And, and I said, you know what, somebody, uh, I told him I wanted to be a lawyer. And he, he didn't say women are lawyers. He just said lawyers were liars. <laughs> so, and then for that day, and then I thought about all these other activities. And I was thinking like, you know, I would love to be an entertainment lawyer because that's my experience and whatnot. Getting back to the choir in this event, then how did people take it in terms of you taking that kind of a stand? Well, it was interesting because there were people that came up to me and said, I'm so shocked. I said, yeah, no, I was really shocked too. And they said, no, I'm shocked that you would say that. I thought you were a nice person. I said, I am a nice person. And they were saying, well, how could you say that? I said, because... That's what I saw. That's what I see. And I have a right to speak out. Well, you're too young. And I said, I don't think so. It affects all of us. It affects you too. I was surprised that people would think I was out of line. But Ed came up to me and he said, Clara, I respect you because you brought up things that I hadn't thought about. And you brought up things that people are thinking but won't say. And he said, I respect that. And so that actually gave me status in the choir. <laughs> he formed a board and I became a part of it. <laughs> he selected me to be on the board. I got a little duet part in a song. <laughs> so, and he really respected my opinion after because he knew I would just tell the truth. So after that meeting, he just said, well, we'll call another choir rehearsal soon and see who's all aboard, what it's going to be. In fairness to Ed, he felt he was doing something honest and, and for the benefit of everyone. Exactly. It, it was not something that he was trying to put himself on a pedestal or whatever. Right. The moment must have been incredible. Yes. To be courted and to be in the midst of those possibilities. Right. I think history speaks for itself in terms of what was really going on. It was historic. But I think to take the time to stop in that moment to actually address what was actually happening must have been pretty amazing. What's interesting is that you would be the one to stop and ask those questions. And Ed would recognize that later. Yeah, no, it was. So what happened when, I guess a couple of weeks went by, and so in the interim, Betty called a rehearsal for the Northern California Youth Choir because she wanted to see if we wanted to be a part of that, saying that we already have engagements lined up Bill Graham wants us to sing at a concert that's coming up. He wants us to be a part of that program. At this time, I hadn't decided what I was going to do, but I said, well, let me check it out. So I went to the rehearsal, and she had some members from her church choir that were there. And then she also had some of her good friends, and they were the 
Pointer Sisters, who were also from Oakland. And the Pointer Sisters had been groomed by Betty Watson and her sisters, because Betty Watson and her sisters had recorded their own album a few years before. They were mentoring the Pointer Sisters, whose father was also a pastor. They lived down the street from one another, neighbors. But their father, the Pointer Sisters' father, pastored a... I believe it was Church of God, but whatever, they didn't believe in outside music. And they were sort of breaking out. And so this being in this choir was sort of a breaking out for them. And which, what eventually happened, they became the Pointer, Bill Graham produced the Pointer Sisters, and they recorded on Columbia Records. But going back to the Betty Watson and the Northern California State Youth Choir, they had been friends for a long time. And so from Betty's standpoint, she wanted to build a core of singers to be the new Northern California State Youth Choir or not even a new, but just to continue on as the Northern California State Youth Choir. I decided that it looked like, you know, appearing with Bill Graham, and I knew that he was definitely rock and roll, and I just didn't know that would be a new adventure for me. It was almost like a fork in the road. But on the other hand, with Ed, even though the Ed Hawkins, the name had changed, we were now the Edwin Hawkins Singers, But I knew all of those singers, and we had been singing together from the time I had been in the choir for three years, and so I was quite comfortable with them, and I knew it was a gospel choir, and whatever happened, we were on that road together. What I didn't know with Betty Watson and what was going to be the new Northern California Youth Choir I didn't know what direction they were going to go in, were they going to be Bill Graham's backup singers or what. So I was a little uncomfortable with that. And so I just decided that from what we had put in and what I had put in and just the emotional content of being a part of the original Northern California Youth Choir, now the Edwin Hawkins Singers, I felt more comfortable in remaining with Edwin Hawkins Singers. So when I went to the rehearsal that Ed called for the Edwin Hawkins Singers to kind of see, okay, so who's going to remain a part of the Edwin Hawkins Singers and who's not coming back? When I came in, it meant that I came to be a part of the, to remain as an Edwin Hawkins Singer. And he was happy there was some comment people that people made. Some were happy, and some said, I thought you were going to remain with Betty Watson and the Northern California Youth Choir that she wants to hold on to. And, and I just said I just felt more comfortable with coming aboard as an Edwin Hawkins singer, and that's what I told Ed. And, and Ed said that to me himself. He says, I didn't know it, he said, but I'm so happy that you made the decision. And I just said, look, Ed, I forgive you. I understand the dynamics, and I'm thankful for where we are right now and the opportunity, and I just want to be a part of this while I can. A big part of my decision to stay with the newly named Edwin Hawkins Singers was because a lot of my family members were in the Hawkins Singers, cousins and members at my church and whatnot, and it just felt more comfortable remaining with the choir. Okay, so Oh Happy Day 
breaks out as a big record and the album takes off. Um, it pulls Ed to New York. Um, the choir transitions from the Northern California State Youth Choir into the Edwin Hawkins Singers. But wasn't something happening at the same time for Dorothy Morrison herself? Yes. And in fact, it wasn't too long after that. I don't know if it was at the first choir meeting or after I came back to the choir and Ed made, he probably gave them my information because of some of the things I said he knew I would just talk and tell. <laughs> but I was called by, I recall specifically Newsweek called to interview me over the phone and I think Time Magazine also called. I, I can't be sure, but definitely I remember Newsweek called and just asked me different questions in general about Northern California State Youth Choir, how we started, how it changed, the name changed to Edwin Hawkins Singers, and just sort of general questions. Well, with Dorothy Morrison, record companies were trying to figure out who produced that sound. And so while on the one end, Ed was offered a contract for the Edwin Hawkins Singers. The record companies went after Dorothy Morrison because she was the lead singer on that, and she was given a record contract as well. And she also did several performances all over the world. And at some point, I think she and Ed later on toured together. She toured with Ed and did lead Oh Happy Day. But when we went out on that first national tour, Ed's cousin Shirley, at the time Shirley Miller, did the lead sing of Dorothy Morrison. And Shirley had a, a wonderful voice. I think when people see Summer of Soul and that rare footage of the choir singing Oh Happy Day at the uh, Harlem concert, that Shirley Miller as the lead singer. Exactly. And that I know I've seen footage of Dorothy Morrison singing with Joan Baez and different people and being in different places. And she got her sisters, which they were all a part of their family group anyway, the Combs family. They could harmonize and back her up. But I hate that she wasn't on that first tour and that she didn't have the opportunity to sing at this Summer of Soul because she was definitely, she was more of the kind of Claire Ward, Betty Watson, sort of show person singer in singing that song. But like I said, Shirley did a wonderful job, but I just, I hate that there wasn't that opportunity for Dorothy Morrison to sing it in that venue. Right, which was the Harlem Music Festival. Well, and I mean, gosh, we did dozens of concerts. I mean, we left, we were gone for maybe three weeks, but packed in. We did concerts with the Beach Boys. We sang at Yankee Stadium with just an array of popular singers, R&B. We sang at rock festivals. We sang at the Newport Beach Festival. We sang with Diana Ross when she was bringing out the Jackson Fives in a weekend concerts in Los Angeles, San Bernardino, and San Diego. We were on TV shows, so all of that that she missed. I I believe she was maybe on a couple of different TV stations, but again, I just hate that she missed that opportunity because we sang everywhere. And And that was my, even with the Summer of Soul, I remember being there 
but I can't remember actually when we sang. I know we sang, we were dressed and we sang, but I couldn't remember. I could just be in there. And I think that day I was so excited because there were so many singer celebrities that I idolized that uh, <laughs> it's like, why are we here? <laughs> so, but yeah. And the fact that it was recorded because a lot of those concerts at that time, if they were recorded, I didn't know. So to go back a little bit, once the album took off, the record was big and it became a national sensation. With the record company involved in the group now, the discussion about going on a tour had to come up. The Northern California State Youth Choir had traveled to a couple of conventions right in Detroit and D.C., but a national tour was pretty big. So what was it like to prepare yourself for this event? It was really exciting. I mean, for me, let's put it back into the time space that I was going through. So... In September of 68, I lost my mom. I want to say between ramping up where our popularity was still ongoing even after I lost my mom, my mom passed away. And I would say after my birthday in March, I'd say from April to June was when Oh Happy Day hit the mass market. And our June, I believe we left on that first tour in June. So this is my senior year. So I missed the prom. I didn't give it a second thought. It was not important to me. (laughs) By then, the guy that had sort of helped bridge my, like, quote, first boyfriend, we had broken up, you know, and uh, (laughs) in fact, it was interesting. He became the piano player for Dorothy Morrison. So they were going off on other tours and whatnot. But, and I was always from the mindset, I never wanted to take a cousin or someone to the prom. I was like, if no one asked me, I'm not asking anybody, then I'm not going. So that didn't happen anyway. And I think it was in May and I was busy. And by then I was just like, "Mm, that's nice. (laughs) So I didn't really care about that because I think it was like maybe the first or second week of June, we left for the tour and we flew out of San Francisco to Los, it could have been Oakland, but anyway, we flew to Los Angeles. Now, how many of you were actually in that original traveling group with the musicians and everything? That was really kind of big. That was. And then Ed added a few family members and friends that weren't on the album. And he did that because at the time he wasn't sure who all could actually go and who might have stayed with the Betty Watson and the Northern California Choir. So there were extra people because I think all in all in the tour, there might have been 60 people. So it ended up being quite a, we filled up, we filled up a good portion of the plane. So we flew from Los Angeles, I believe to New York. And then we took buses from New York to like Philadelphia, Washington, DC. We stayed a few days and then we, New York was sort of the hub. We took the bus to Chicago, Detroit, Washington, DC, and Philadelphia for different Concerts. I mean, we'd stay in hotels or whatever during that, but we'd end up back in New York. And when we were in New York, we did TV shows. That's when we did the Harlem Festival. I remember one time we had an engagement, and it ended up it was at some club in Queens, and the stage was too small. And I think that happened in Cincinnati as well. 
it was interesting because they were like, oh, that's too many of you, you know, because we were sort of on the circuit and they were booking and, you know, in terms of the sound, and is it a dozen? I mean, they're like, whoa, whoa, we, we don't have enough room. We, the fire marshals will shut us down. So, <laughs> How did people act? This was a major thing, and being on the road is not easy anyway. So how did people prepare themselves? And did everybody kind of stay in their own lane, or did people get overwhelmed? What was that experience like? Considering I was a teenager, I was 18. I turned 18 in March. And the thing that was interesting, which would probably wouldn't have happened, but the fact that my mom had passed away, and my dad took an early retirement from his job, and he resigned as pastor of the church. And so he was a free bird, so he signed up to be a chaperone. So my whole family was on the tour. So for us, it was like, this is great. So anything that I wanted to do, I remember, in fact, it was that, and that's probably why I couldn't remember whether we sang in that, because we met these young men that were, like, wanted to take us to dinner or something, and we're like, ooh, you know, they look like nice guys. I mean, you know, people just come up to, you know, we were celebrities, and we're like, oh, wow. <laughs> and, uh, but talk about the demographics of the group, the age ranges. What was the oldest to the youngest? Well, the demographics were from, I think the youngest might have been 15, because I can recall at least two of the singers, they were like sophomores in high school. I was just graduating, and so they were like sophomores in high school. So it was 15, 14, 15. And on the high end? Maybe in 40s, early 40s. I do remember a couple of choir members that had teenagers. So it was young teenagers, young adults and adults. Yeah. That's an amazing traveling group. Yeah. So we had all different. Yeah. So what happened, I became closer. I mean, I knew who all my cousins were. So, I mean, we were all, my aunt was there, you know, of course she had married Fred from Betty Watson. So of course he, you know, he stayed with the Edwin Arkansas singers. My sister, my brother, first cousins, second cousins, some of the Crystalette members <laughs> from Ephesians. Yeah. So it was, yeah. It was a big group, but we also, at that time, I would just say probably the biggest friendship that I got from that group was I became closer friends with Kathy Gaines, who I knew of her dad, but I had never really knew her other than meeting her choir rehearsal. So we knew a lot of them from the choir rehearsals, but being on the road, you really get to learn more about people. Have you maintained the relationships? The relationships are still present. Several were relatives, you know, my brother, my sister, my cousins. Of course, my dad has passed away about 10 years ago, but I have the friendships, uh, the children of the Crystalettes, who, of course, we're all grandparents now. And the friends that I met in the choir, we still have great relationships. So it's been a blessing in that way. It's cemented our friendship because being in the choir was a bond that was created. It had a purpose. It was a spiritual as well as a coming of age experience for all of us. Well, it's been fun spending time with you, Clara. Over all these years we've been together, You've always brought this experience up and how it helped shape you, but we've never really had a chance to really dive deeply into it. Also, having your childhood friends and family sharing their personal stories is pretty impactful. 
It kind of puts this amazing journey all in perspective from a lot of different voices. So I know it's going to impact everyone that gets a chance to hear the episodes on this podcast because it was an incredible part of gospel history that is enjoyable to hear more about. So thank you very much. This episode was produced and edited by Steve and Clara Williams for Kite Fire Productions. Listen and follow for free wherever you listen to podcasts.